Thank you. It's always nice to get your applause at the beginning before you've said anything, I figure, and then you know, we're safe. Um, I'm delighted to see you all here. Before we start, I want to apologize to Tyler and Carrie, and if there's someone else I'm missing who's been in my honors seminar, because some of this is going to be repetitive for you. And I also apologize if some of this is too elementary for a lot of you who might know a great deal about constitutional history. But, you know, one of the goals that every teacher has here at UNL is to help students think critically about a topic. And I contend that you can't think critically if you don't have facts on which to hang your ideas and your opinions. And so before we start examining some of the some of the questions related to freedom of expression, I think it's important to talk a little bit about how we got this concept into the Constitution in the first place. So think about this. Um, we've been going through a big, long war that nobody is crazy about. Is it possible that at some point in the discussions about the war, you might have said something critical about the government? Is it possible you did that ever, maybe? Did the police come marching after you and say, stop that, you can't criticize your government? No. Are there some places in the world where that could have happened? Yeah, there are, there are. Um, once in a while, in some extreme situations, you might say um, a couple of dirty words. You might even put them in an email and send them to a friend. Oh my gosh. Um, does the government punish you for that? No. Are there some places in the world where you might be punished for expression like that? Yeah. One day when you're bored, you buy the National Enquirer, you're standing in line at the supermarket and it looks like, oh my gosh, why not? So you start reading about it and you see a lot of stuff about politicians' private lives or their daughters' private lives, perhaps. Are there places in the world where putting something like this in a publication about the president's daughter could get you into big trouble? There are, but not here. I mean, you bought it at the supermarket line, right? So what does this tell you about uh, Americans and freedom of expression? Tells you that it's something we really think is important, but we often take for granted, I think. And we don't stop to think about how that affects our lives. Here's the First Amendment. I'm guessing most of you probably couldn't recite it from memory if you had to. How many freedoms are listed in the First Amendment? How many? Five, absolutely. Religion, two ways. Press, speech, assembly, and petition. And we don't think about assembly and petition too much. Assembly is pretty obvious. That's maybe protests. We sometimes exercise our right to assembly that way. Petitioning the government, you know what the most obvious, not, not obvious, I suppose, but the most common way people petition the government today? Through a lobbyist. I mean, you can write letters, you can send emails, you can go and call up your congressperson, you can talk to them. But most of us get our needs before the government via a lobbyist. There are those, you know, those people that we all love to hate, those dirty lobbyists. There's somebody in the legislature every day and in the Congress every day representing you, your interests. I mean, there's somebody for teachers, for students, for, for businesses of all kinds, for poor people, for everybody. There's a lobbyist for every interest. Now, that's a little beside the point, but that is part of free expression also. All of these things here are part of free expression. Religion, being able to practice your religion, that is a matter of your expression, your, your ability and your, your, um, your welcomeness to speak about what you believe. Obviously, speech in the press, assembly, if you want to protest, and petition, all part of the First Amendment. So why is this First Amendment valuable in a democracy? I think there are three reasons that scholars identify that we want to take a quick look at tonight. First of all, free speech provides a necessary check against potential government corruption. Secondly, free speech is vital to a search for truth. And third, the right to express your thoughts and to communicate freely with other people affirms the dignity and importance of every person. Just the fact that you can say what you think says that you matter and your ideas matter. 
So these are all things that we value. Interestingly, though, we also value some other things in this country, do we not? I mean, free expression is, is really important, but what else do we value? Can you think of anything else we might value in this country? Somebody. Oh, you can think of something. Louder? Privacy. privacy. Oh, absolutely. We do value our privacy. What else might we value? What? Money. Money, yeah. And sometimes free speech and money don't get along. Everyone's a justice, liberty and justice for all, right? Sometimes we run into some things, some places where we have conflicting values, where freedom of expression clashes with something else that we also value. Um, what about people who um, protest outside the hall where the president is speaking, but they're kept so far away that the president never really sees them or hears them? Is that infringing on their right to speak? Or if they were right out there yelling at him, would that be infringing on his right to speak? Um, what if a speaker gets invited to the university and then gets disinvited um, for reasons of safety? You know, we're balancing a couple of different things there, right? His right to speak, our right to listen, our right to be safe, his right to be safe. What about the press covering a trial? You're, you're guaranteed the right to a fair trial in the um, Constitution. Um, if you were arrested, why might you want an open public trial with the press there? Can you think of a reason you might want the press there? Yeah? No? In the pink shirt? Okay. Sure. Why might you not want the press there? You're embarrassed, you're ashamed, you're, you know, all that stuff, right? But if you've got the press there and it's an open public trial, then you've got somebody keeping an eye on the officials and making sure that things go the way they're supposed to. So you've got a trade-off there. What about um, the press keeping an eye on the way the government conducts wars and protects us? Some people would say that that's a threat to national security. Don't criticize the president, don't criticize the government, the military, they're doing their best. And if you start harping at them, then you're undermining their authority and we're not going to be as safe. Uh, most Americans, I think, know, they know there's a First Amendment. They kind of know what it's about. And the thing I think they know most about is the speech part, because that's me. I mean, I get to practice that, I get to speak. And that's important. But many aren't sure really what else it says or how it should be applied. So we're going to look at these three things in more detail. First of all, the idea that free speech checks government corruption. This is probably what came to mind first when the founders were considering um, how to set up our government. And when we think about freedom of expression, it's the right to criticize the people in power, right? Because we're the government. We have the right to criticize those people that we elect and that we put into power. Interestingly, though, I don't know what that is. Oh, I know. Sorry. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Interestingly enough, free speech was not at the top of the list when the founders sat down to write the Constitution. That wasn't the main thing they were concerned about. What was the main thing they were concerned about at that point? Somebody said something. Liberty? Yeah. They were concerned about getting a government that worked. Let's think about this in terms of a story. And what this is, is the transporter from Star Trek, which is going to beam us all up and take us to another an imaginary place, the eighth continent, previously undiscovered. And we have been sent here by the Federation to start our own community. So we pretty much are on our own, set up our own government. We print our own money, we start our own postal service, we grow our own crops, we make our own clothes, we do our own manufacturing. You know, we're, we're doing pretty well. Things are going along quite nicely. But then, one day, when um, one of you, um, what's your name? Darby? Darby? Is out, when Darby's out walking, she takes a long walk, she goes over the hill, and she finds, holy mackerel, there's another community over there. Look at that. Over the hills, there's another one. Um, 
And the next day, Tyler goes out and he walks a different direction and he finds another settlement over there. And after we do some more exploring, we find that we're really part of a dozen communities, about a dozen, pretty well established. And it doesn't take us very long to discover that that neighboring one over there grows great vegetables, which we have a really hard time doing. And the one in that direction has livestock that we just can't seem to get rolling here. And somebody else makes bicycles, and boy, would that be handy to have. We ourselves make great clothes. We're really into textiles. And some of those other groups would really like the clothes. So we start trading with each other, and we find out that we like those other people, too. And we have a lot in common. We're all trying to make it here on the eighth continent. We're feeling pretty good about how much freedom we have, all of us, to do what we want here, away from that federation that was kind of bugging us before we came here. But then, disaster strikes. The federation strikes back. They tell us we have to start paying some hefty taxes. And they will be in charge of telling us how to run our community. And our fancy ideas of freedom of expression can just take a back seat to their philosophies. Well, we don't like it. And neither do the people in those other settlements. And so we get some of our people together with some of their people. And we try to decide what to do. And because we're all experts in collective action theory, we realize pretty fast that we'll get a lot farther together than we would individually. And so we band together. We present a united front. We get organized. And we tell the Federation to get off our backs. The Federation won't. We go to war eventually. We fight a war to get rid of them. And, sorry, and we win. And the Federation finally gives up, walks away, leaves us to our own devices. Okay, well, great. This is terrific. So then the same people who organized us to fight that war are trying to help us go on now and continue trading with each other and continue exchanging ideas and continue to band together to keep federations like that one away and, and um, not let anybody take the good stuff we've got here. But these representatives are busy people. And sometimes they don't show up for meetings. And when they decide to pass, they actually pass a resolution and they ask for a tax, some communities won't pay. I mean, you know, we make clothes. We don't have any problem with putting a tax on the vegetables that those people over there grow or on the bicycles from that group, but leave our clothes alone. Don't tax us and our manufacturing. So sometimes settlements won't even go along with it. And even when they do pay, they pay in a dozen different currencies and what you're gonna do then, you know? How are we gonna manage this? And nobody really wants to pay taxes at all, and things are going downhill, and what are we going to do? That's the situation that the United States, such as it was, faced in the 1770s and early 1780s, which you know, I'm sure. Um, we had gotten rid of the British, we called ourselves a nation, but the Continental Congress that had fought the war, led us through that successfully, couldn't keep us going in the peace. Things were just deteriorating. The Continental Congress didn't work. The colonies wouldn't pay their share of expenses. We had debt from the war, and nobody wanted to help pay that off. It was painfully slow. It took forever to get things done. And we had these Articles of Confederation, but we couldn't amend them. We either had to start over or, or just keep muddling along. Each colony had its own currency. And so debts in one place couldn't be paid with money from another place. A lot of the representatives didn't bother to even show up. Excuse me, the tea fell off my convenience there. Um, and the Continental Congress was just a failure. And the, the really scary part was we were in danger of splitting apart again into 13 separate individual little nations right next to each other wanting what the others had. And this was not going to be a good situation. So what the 29 gentlemen who gathered for the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia were worried about was forming a government. You know, free speech, yeah, that's good. But first, let's get something here that's going to work, and let's make this happen. They needed to figure out how to make a, bunch, make a nation out of a bunch of dysfunctional colonies. 
So they spent from May to September in Philadelphia coming up with ideas. They shut the doors and they shut the windows so that nobody would hear what was going on and start spreading rumors. This is the middle of the summer in Philadelphia. It is not cool in that room. And they're not wearing tank tops and flip-flops, you know? They're all bundled up in their colonial gear and made out of wool and suffering in the heat. But they kept at it. They worked at it, they'd try some ideas and they'd reject those and then they'd try others. Says, have any of you ever read any of Madison's notes from that convention by any chance for a class? Pretty cool stuff, I think. I mean, it's not easy reading, but it's very complex. But you can see them, you know, that we'll start out in this direction and then we kind of go over here. We reject that idea, we're gonna try something else. And they go back and forth and compromise. Finally, after spending the summer in that hot room in Philadelphia, they came up with something they thought would work. They got a majority of the, of the 13 colonies to vote for ratification, but only a majority. Some of them still wouldn't vote to ratify. This is the kind of government they had developed. It was a representative democracy, not a direct democracy, not all of us will gather every time to vote on every issue, but we'll elect representatives who will, who will represent our interests. They came up with three branches, which you all know, with checks and balances. You've all learned this probably from Schoolhouse Rock, if nowhere else. Um, they came up with a federal government that still left a lot of power to the individual states within it. It's a federal government. When we talk about the federal government today, usually what we're talking about is that national bunch in Washington. But federal is actually the description of our system with a national government and state governments. Not all the delegates thought it would work though, and in fact, a group called the Anti-Federalists started lobbying against the Constitution's ratification. They thought the national government was way too strong and the states weren't getting enough power and this was not gonna be good and you know, how come we can't do what we wanna do? Which sounds pretty much like a bunch of squabbling kids, but that's the way it was. They didn't want to give up their sovereignty as individual states. And they also didn't like it that the Constitution, as written, didn't have a specific provision for individual rights. They said the Constitution tells us what the government may do, but not what it may not do, and that's just as important. What can the government not do to you? That's what we want to have laid out here. They said it didn't ban the seizure of property, searches of homes on a whim. It didn't say that a person would be guaranteed to a trial by jury. It didn't say specifically that a person would be free to practice or not practice any religion he wanted to. Or that newspapers would be free to publish without government interference. Or that people could speak their minds about their government without being punished for it. All of those things, the Anti-Federalists said, had better be in there or we're not going to vote to ratify. In the response, the Federalists said, don't worry, be happy, it's all gonna be all right. We got this set up so that the different branches of government are checking each other and nobody's gonna have enough power to really be able to um, take away your, your individual liberties. You're gonna be okay. But as the weeks went on, the Federalists could see that the Anti-Federalists were gaining ground. Uh, they were making their point with a lot of people who had to vote to ratify or not. So James Madison, who was really the father of the Constitution and, and I think should have his own monument in Washington along with Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson, um, he said, okay, you go ahead and ratify and I promise that the first Congress will write all those individual liberties down and we'll get them into the Constitution. You can pass those as amendments and then it'll all be there. And, and you'll be happy, we'll be happy, we'll have a nation and still everybody's individual rights will be protected. And that's what happened. The Anti-Federalists swallowed their worries about the national government and said, okay, we're gonna ratify. The Federalists said, we will write a set of amendments that will protect individual freedoms. And James Madison took the lead. In 1789, he introduced 12 amendments, 12 to the Congress, 
12 amendments to the new Constitution. And I would love to be able to tell you that the first amendment as we know it was the first one because it was so important, but it wasn't. It was the third one. Um, the first one in Madison's bunch of 12, actually they started out with a lot more than that, but they finally ended up with 12 to send to the states for ratification. And the first one was about apportioning the Congress as the population group. And it wasn't passed. It wasn't ratified for some reason. The second one was about congressional salaries, that uh, no Congress could vote to increase its own salaries, that if it did approve a salary increase, it wouldn't take effect until after the next election, you know, when I might be here or I might not be here. That passed, in, that was ratified finally in the 1990s, 200 years later. It sat around, I mean, it had some attention, and then finally it was brought up again, and enough states ratified, and, and it took effect. But originally it didn't. So the third amendment on the list was the one about freedom of expression, and it moved up to become the first amendment, and now it seems like that's where it should have been all along, because it's so important, and because we value it so highly. So that's the history lesson. Now, back to these three reasons. Free speech and a necessary check against government corruption. This is really what the anti-federalists, and the federalists too, were most specifically concerned about when they wrote free expression into the Bill of Rights. Why would that be true? Why would this be the one thing they were most concerned about? Oops. What do you think? The ability to criticize the government. Why is that so important? Tyler. Exactly. Under the British rule, both when they were in England and when they were here as British colonials, they could be punished for sedition for criticizing the government. Didn't matter if it was true or not, just criticism was enough. So they were really worried about this one and they wanted to get it right in there. They said you can't have government by the people if the people can't tell their governors what they think. Um, sorry. <laughs> okay, in England, just a couple centuries before, in fact, in the 1600s yet, now, now we're talking late 1700s, but maybe 150 years before that, it was a crime even to imagine the death of the king or queen. To imagine it, not even to speak it, just to think it. You couldn't even think that. I don't know how they'd find out that you were thinking, you know, but if they did, you were sunk. Um, well, if you couldn't even think about getting rid of, of a monarch, you obviously had no role in government, none. And what the framers had just set up with their three branches and their checks and balances was a government of, by, and for the people. So it would be logical that the people should have some say in what's going on and should be able to criticize when they thought it was appropriate. So the framers thought that that could prevent the kind of rampant corruption that had so often existed in monarchies or other forms of government where just one person had all the power or a small group of people. Just think about that. Have any of you read any of those books by Philippa Gregory about the wives of Henry VIII? Anybody? Or saw the movie, The Other Boleyn Girl? They're, they're wonderful, fun, historical novels. And they're very much based in fact. And what's so interesting about that and pertinent here is that Henry VIII was the government. And if you didn't meet his approval, you could be banished, executed, um, you name it. I mean, it was up to Henry, that's it. And if Henry changed his mind and you didn't know about it, too bad. You know, you're just SOL. When one person has all the power, that's a problem. Um, in a 1972 case, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, those who won independence believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. This was really on the founders' minds. It was a very practical reason to protect free expression. But then there are these other reasons. Free speech is essential to the search for truth. Just think about that for a minute. If you want to know if something's true or not, how do you find out? Let's say that you heard that um, 
the average temperature in the world is getting a little higher each year. How are you going to find out if that's true or not? You're going to read. You're going to listen. You're going to watch stuff on TV. Look it up online. You're going to Google it. You're going to go through all the kinds, all kinds of speaking and listening and learning and hearing to discover whether something is true or not. Think what would happen if only the king could tell you what's true. You know, we'd, we'd have, let's say we have king, we won't say George, we'll say King uh, Henry in power here. And King Henry will tell us that the world either is or is not getting warmer. Could you trust the king to tell you the truth all the time? I don't think so. I mean, he's got vested interest in, in his own, own uh, power and keeping it. Would you feel respected and valued if you had no way to know truth except to accept what the king or the queen told you? Probably not. You know, you didn't count at all in a case like that. Um, and that leads us to the third reason that free expression is so important. The right to express your thoughts affirms the dignity and importance of every person. It says that you matter. Every single one of you, you matter. You are worthy of consideration. Your ideas are worth listening to. Now, the Founding Fathers were divided as to the degree they believed the people at the time were capable of governing themselves. Can they do it? Can they not? Mm, well, I don't know. So they kind of went back and forth to make it more direct democracy and more representative democracy. And, you know, they were looking at trade-offs all the time. And they came out somewhere in the middle. And yet, they believed that at a fundamental level, everybody could and should be part of the governing process because they believed everybody was worth something. Everybody should have some level of respect and dignity just by virtue of being here on Earth together. So you've got to have some say, then, in what your government does and how it treats you. So those were basically the three reasons behind the First Amendment in the first place, and they have continued to support its maintenance, and in some cases, even the expansion of the idea of free expression through cases that have come before the Supreme Court. The court has looked at various challenges and examined how the principles of the First Amendment apply to the particular circumstance in each case. Um, this has not always made everybody happy by any means, but it has kept intact the rule of law, not the rule of the king or the rule of some other single individual person. The rule of law, which is something we probably don't think about very often, but is one of the major blessings we have in this country. And it's maintained the right of free expression as a fundamental right in our nation, one of the most fundamental rights. So you would think that we could just put our hands over our hearts and salute the flag and say, we've got this wonderful thing called free expression, and it's absolute. But it's not always absolute. So back to the beginning of this talk. Sometimes free expression, one of the things we value most, collides with other things we value, and then life gets sticky. So now, um, it's your turn. I've refreshed your memory a little bit about some of the, the facts behind the Constitution and the First Amendment and the civil liberties that we celebrate. And now we're going to think about how this applies in real life. There's a group called the Freedom Forum, which is dedicated to free speech, free press, free people. And each year, the Freedom Forum does a survey, uh, a random sample, you know, statistically correct survey of people asking Americans about free expression and what they think about it. And I've got a few of the questions from the 2007 survey here. And we're going to see what you guys think about them, and then I'll show you what the response was from the, the survey itself. So here's the first question. And now, with any luck, this will work. Does this work? Can you hear me? No. It worked before. OK, I'll yell. There's a small enough group. We can do this. Um, 
Newspapers should be allowed to freely criticize the US military about its strategy and performance. What do you think? Should that be allowed? The, the Army wasn't going to tell the Congress about that, right? Wasn't going to tell us about it. And if it hadn't been for the media, that wouldn't have been uncovered. Well, maybe that's just as well, some people would say. I mean, you know, it's war. But a lot of people said, no, wait, that's not who we are as Americans. We don't do things like that. And let's clean this up. You know, if we're going to go to war, at least we've got to go with um, the principles that we believe are important intact. Here's the way what people said in response. 60% agreed that the media should be allowed to report freely and criticize the strategy and performance. 37% disagreed, though. That's, you know, that's a pretty good-sized group that said, no, just be quiet and just let it go. Would it help if I put on this little mic? 
Oh, okay. What, would you prefer that I do that? That thing is still not working. No. Sorry, this is sort of not a good thing here. Okay, now I gotta carry this with me. Okay, here's question number two that we're gonna look at. Demonstrators should be allowed to express themselves through protest while standing on public sidewalks or street, streets as a funeral procession passes by. Oh my gosh, where did that question come from? Who's been protesting at funerals? The Westboro Baptist Church, that's right. Um, what do you know about the Westboro Baptist Church? What? Nothing? Talk real loud. Uh, they protest soldiers' funerals because they feel that it's a sign from God that American values are slipping, values like uh, homosexuality, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's like God's punishment. Right. America. Exactly. Um, these soldiers are dead because God is punishing America for being, especially it's homosexuality that's bothering them, for being too tolerant of homosexuality. So they go to soldiers' funerals and hold signs that say, you know, God hates fags, and things like that. Google them and you can see more than you ever wanted to about this group. So um, what do you think? I mean, that's just disgusting, isn't it? It's hateful. You're getting these people in the, a time when they're really vulnerable and they're, you know, upset already. Should they be allowed to do that? I mean, doesn't the, the First Amendment says, you know, the right to limitations on free speech that you can't just go somewhere and tell someone that, like, you can't slander someone's name like that. Okay. There needs to be a limitation on that. Like, you can't falsely accuse someone. That's true. You can't falsely accuse. But, you know, in many cases, I don't think they're accusing that particular soldier of being a homosexual. You know, it's just that, um, as you said, God's punishing America because we do this. They are. And I don't, and obviously the First Amendment protects them, but I definitely would have to be tolerant for them. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to play devil's advocate and say Good. that they should be allowed. I don't agree at all with what the Westboro Baptist Church does, just to clarify. But constitutionally, they are allowed to. And it's unfortunate that we can't write a perfect document to... Um, restrict everyone from doing these things that we consider very cruel, um, very insensitive, like uh, she said. But constitutionally, it's important that we don't um, start putting so many limitations on our freedom because that's a very slippery slope. Okay. Um, what, what can be right to someone might not be right to someone else. Um, the framers wrote things sort of in that vague manner for that exact purpose, so the Constitution would not become outdated. Yeah, good point, good points. Um, but it is gross and disgusting, isn't it? And if there's any kind of speech we'd like to ban, I mean, we're not talking about just something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We're talking about hate speech here, essentially. And we're all good people, and we don't like hate speech. So let's just ban it, let's just get rid of it. But this gentleman says we can't do that, because the First Amendment says you have a right to speak. Anybody in the back here have a comment? Anybody, would, would any of you like to vote to get the Westboro Baptists away from funerals? By law. By law. <laughs> yeah, it's a little harder when it's by law, isn't it? Well, somebody here made the point, well, I guess it was you, who, that that's not absolute, you know? This free expression stuff is, is true, but we have. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press, but it has made laws abridging freedom of speech and the press because there are these other values that conflict. You can't slander and li or libel somebody. You can't ruin somebody's reputation in the, in the media or by your own speech th because that's something else we value. You can't invade somebody's privacy because that we value. 
So we have put some restrictions on. And in the case of the Westboro Baptists, what the courts have said, and it's been found constitutional to this point at least, is they've got to stay a certain distance away from the funeral itself. So what they tend to do is go to the nearest main street, you know, close to the cemetery, and protest there, which makes them happier anyway because they get more attention you know, from traffic going by and so forth. And then you've got the Patriot Guard. You know who the Patriot Guard are? Those guys on motorcycles, those veterans. They come and sort of block the view of the family from the protesters, you know, so they don't have to see them. Um, so the answer to speech you don't like in that case is more speech. You know? I don't like what you're saying, so I'm going to say this instead. I'm not going to stop you from saying that, but I will tell you what I think, too. Here's the, the national survey results on this one. 38% said, um, yes, they should be allowed to express themselves, but 58% said, no, let's ban them. Let's get them out of there. Um, the danger, as you pointed out, is that if you start banning the Westboro Baptists, then you set a precedent for banning other things. And maybe something that we like is going to be coming up that we personally like, and we won't be able to say that because now it's been banned. Now you can put restrictions on it that are pretty, pretty thorough. That's the danger. The majority will always allow itself to speak. It's the minorities of interests that we have to worry about protecting. Right? Here's another one. Public school students should be allowed to wear a t-shirt with a message or a picture that others might find offensive. Could be, um, it could be a, a shirt that seems to be promoting drugs. Um, could be a, an anti-gay shirt or a pro-gay rights shirt. Could be an anti-feminist shirt. Should somebody be allowed to wear a shirt like that in, in a high school? Or college, I guess, but the, the question on the survey was at high school. There was a, um, a court case similar to this, wasn't there, back uh, in the Vietnam War era, where a family of students wore black armbands to school, mm -hmm. and the school tried to shut them down because it might offend certain people that mm -hmm. were pro-war. That's it right. It was unconstitutional that they could wear those armbands because it was their beliefs. Was indeed. The name of the case is Tinker v. Des Moines, and it was in the 70s, 1974, I believe. And the court said, your Students' right to free speech does not stop at the schoolhouse gate. But they've been backing off from that ever since <laughs> and putting more and more restrictions on what students can say in high schools. Uh, the idea there was that that was not disruptive, you know, that, that they were not causing a stir that would interfere with other people's learning. And so they were allowed to wear the black armbands. But now, what about a shirt that says, um, hmm, God hates fags. I mean, that's the Westboro Baptists saying. Or something to that effect. That's going to be really offensive to people. And it could be disruptive. It could cause a fight in the halls. Should they be allowed to wear that shirt? Wouldn't people who, uh, who are very anti-homosexual find that something like Silence Day offensive? Where, I mean, oh, yeah. People go around and some people wear duct tape on their mouths or uh, put bandanas over their mouths so that they can't be forced to speak or anything like that. Yeah. So even people taking a stand for what maybe the um, progressive majority might think is right could be offensive to the others, is what you're saying. I think that you can misinterpret a lot of things as offensive, so you can't really create a, a law that says you can't do one thing because then it's like everybody's going to have to go to school wearing white t-shirts because if you wear certain colors, it might offend certain people. Yeah. Why white t-shirts? Why not black t-shirts? Yeah. Maybe you are blue. You offend people who like to wear red because of certain perceived gang affiliation. Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's offense given and offense taken. And yeah, there's always something on the other side. So however, what else is going on at high schools that's of concern? Education. Education. Exactly. We hope, anyway. Um, and safety and order. I mean, you got in big high schools, you've got thousands of teenagers traipsing through the halls all the time. Order means something, right? It does. You don't want fights breaking out. You don't want uh, all kinds of commotion. P 
People won't learn if that's the case. And the courts are trying to balance those two things. Letting people have their say, whatever their beliefs are, popular or not, and trying to maintain a learning environment. Sometimes they go one way and then they'll kind of ease back from that and go a little bit the other way. But ever since Tinker v. Des Moines, they've really been backing off of how many rights of expression high school kids have and have been more and more willing to restrict it. Here's what the group said in the survey. 22% agreed, only 22%. 74% disagreed. That's a whopping majority. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I, and when I, when, we, when I said order, I think you could extrapolate safety out of that, you know, because order means that things are going to be more safe. So yes, you're absolutely right. There are things on the other side that we also value. And so it's not always easy to make these decisions. Um, let's skip that one. How about this? Musicians should be allowed to sing songs with lyrics that others might find offensive. Yes, they should. Why? How? Why? Because no one is forcing you to listen to that music. Nobody's forcing you to listen to the music. That's true. But what if I'm in my car with my little kids, and you know something comes on that's just awful, and they've got these little children there, and they hear some words that I don't want them to hear? How come those musicians should be able to do that? Okay. Okay. Back here. You censor lyrics and like it's it's moving towards censoring like everyday speech. And I mean if you say you can't produce a song that says one word, then like well, who's to say you can say that like when you're just having a conversation with someone else? Uh, if you if you edit that kind of stuff, then if you restrict that kind of those kind of uh, words and stuff, then you have to restrict it in like everyday talk. Yeah, I think you could, you could take that next step. But you know, when um, it's on a, on a um, what am I trying to say, on a CD, or it's on iTunes, or whatever, it's so easy for people to get at. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I think that there's a lot of parental responsibility that people overlook there. I mean, uh, as a consequence of the whole Tipper Gore thing with music, there has to be a parental, or parental advisory sticker in. You have to be a certain age to buy certain CDs. So I think that, and like I know on iTunes personally, you can change settings so you can't buy a certain song unless you have approval from like a parent with a password. I think there's a lot of parental advisory that's overlooked there. I mean, they place too much importance on the artists to be censored that. Okay. I, I guess the parents should take a bigger role in this than they are. Okay. Yeah. Real loud. Yes. Oh my goodness, we would have to say, right? Um, yeah, the whole parental responsibility thing is a, is a good point. Let me ask this. When you guys were in um, fifth and sixth grade, how many of you went home after school to an empty house? Quite a few. Not everybody. What was to keep you from watching MTV and listening to all this stuff and your parents would never know? No. Or getting online? I mean, iTunes, well, let's say we, you couldn't get the worst stuff on iTunes. But. So maybe the parents aren't there, and maybe 
as a collective, we have some responsibility to protect those children. Yeah? I think uh, what he was saying about iTunes, there's um, parental control. I'm not sure when the B chip was introduced to televisions, but there was such an outcry for it that corporations themselves st uh, stepped up and provided parents with the means to block channels um, yeah. so that in their absence that didn't happen. Yeah. So you're making good points here about how maybe it's a private responsibility, not a public one, you know, that we have to go ban this stuff as a, as a nation or a community. And you're making good points about how if we stop this, then what's to keep us from banning something else till we can't say much of anything. I mean, you walk across this campus and the F word is sort of like a conjunction, you know? I mean, you hear it so often, all the time. If we're going to ban that, we're going to have a big problem of enforcement. Yeah. Even above and beyond parental responsibility, the government does have regulations about uh, what kind of music can be played on the radio mm -hmm. and what, uh, what words specifically can be said on the radio. That's true. So there is some regulation. There is some, exactly. And it's on broadcast radio and broadcast television. Who knows the difference there between broadcast and cable? What? That's right. Why? They have to pay for it, and how do you get a signal? Um, ABC, CB, if you got rabbit ears, how do you get that signal? That's right, through the over the airwaves on public frequencies. And long ago, when radio began, the government said, because you're using a common good here, the public airwaves we will put a few restrictions on what you can do with those. That doesn't apply at all, of course, to cable because they're not using the airwaves and satellite TV, satellite radio, they're not using the airwaves. And some of that's spilling over now and the FCC is having a harder time putting restrictions on broadcast because people are saying, well, you know, if you can turn one channel over and get it, why can't I get it here? And the whole thing is kind of up for grabs. But anyway, let's see what people thought about this one. 55% agreed that they should be able to sing even offensive lyrics. But 42% said no. There's a good-sized group here that, that wants to restrict more things. We've got just a couple more minutes, so I want to skip to something else here. Oh, these are all good, good ones. But here's a good one. Some people feel the U.S. Constitution should be amended to make it illegal to burn or desecrate the American flag as a form of political dissent. Others say the Constitution should not be amended for that purpose. Do you think the U.S. Constitution should or should not be amended to prohibit burning or desecrating the American flag? What do you think? How is, the, how is flag burning protected by the Constitution? It does. The courts have called it symbolic speech. And they've said symbolic speech is protected by the First Amendment just as is, you know, speech in words. And so they have said that constitutionally, it's okay to burn the flag as a political protest. So the Congress has tried several times to pass a law that says it's not okay to burn the flag. They've tried to make it a criminal offense. And as soon as they pass that law, somebody challenges it in the courts, and the courts come back and say, you can't do that, Congress, because it's not constitutional. So if you don't want, if you still think that it's worth trying to get that done and to ban flag burning, but the courts say it's unconstitutional, what's your only recourse? Change the Constitution, exactly. Amend the Constitution. We've done it before. You know, we, we prohibited alcohol. And then we changed our minds and we amended it again and allowed alcohol, obviously. So, you know, we've amended it 26 times, I think, over the years. So why not amend it to ban flag burning? How do you feel about flag burning? Go ahead. Well, I just think it's a Talk loud. concept because once you have to dispose of a flag, we have to burn it anyway. So. True. But it's, isn't it done with a special ceremony that honors the flag? I mean, you know, that's, you're supposed to do it a certain way and so but forth. How do you draw that line? Well, 
draw the line between ceremonial burning and burning on a campfire? Oh, I'm thinking, you know, if somebody's burning the flag in protest, you'll know it's protest. Yeah. You'll know it's protest. Um, over here and then here and then back there. The pink coat. Real loud. Where and when did that happen? I think it was in Wisconsin. He's my cousin. I don't really know him that well. Wow, and he went to jail for it. Yeah. Was found guilty? Ooh. That law is probably unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah. Um, somebody over here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think it's also kind of sort of like our reaction to it that makes it such a powerful statement. Like if we, like obviously this is a big deal. Like a lot of people get really upset that people burn the flags. If we like didn't acknowledge that people were doing this, it would lose its power as a form of protest. So it's the. It's the very disgusting nature of it that makes it powerful, is what you're saying. The fact that it makes us angry. Yeah. And so if we ignored it. Not acknowledge it, then yeah. it would stop. Interesting idea. Somebody back here. Yeah, sure. I mean, you see flags in clothing, right? Jackets that look like the American flag. Pants, you, you can sit on it, but you can't burn it. Don't stomp on it either. Shirley, um, who's the Westboro Baptist guy? Phelps, Shirley Phelps Roper, the daughter of the founder of that so-called church, um, was at a protest, a funeral protest in the Omaha area, and her little kid stomped on a flag at her direction. And she's being charged. She's being charged with child neglect, I believe, not, you know, because flag abuse is probably not going to go too far. But, um, but it's a disgusting idea. I mean, the flag, how do you feel about the flag? Does it make you feel good to see it? It does me. Yeah. Well, we don't have a law against it, but we do pay a lot of attention when it happens, don't we? I mean, it, it doesn't happen often. It's not like people are out there, you know, every other day burning the flag in protest. It just doesn't happen. But when it does, boy, it gets attention. Yeah. Um, I was going to say with the flag itself, and they kind of touched on it with the handheld ones, um, and, and you touched on it with the clothing thing, um, you know, how much we, we, uh, I mean, we recognize it as a national symbol but it seems like it varies from how it can be abused. For instance, setting on it if it's clothing fashion. Um, or, or I've always wondered about bumper stickers that are American flags. You know, they get mud sprayed on it. Is yeah. that desecration of a national symbol? Um, any of those magnets that are made like American flags. And furthermore, as for how much of an American symbol this is, it's more of a, I don't know, like an emotional appeal. But I would really like, challenge someone to find a flag that's still made in the United States. <laughs> True. So. Probably most of them in China. Yeah. Um, what does the flag stand for to you? What is it, when you look at a flag, what do you think? What does it say to you? Pride in our country. Pride in our country. Freedom, liberty, justice, um, caring community, all that good stuff. And so when somebody burns it, they're saying, we don't care about that. We don't think this is a good country. We don't have any pride in it. But on the other hand, it's the fact that they can do that that's one of the things that's protected in our country. So you can go back and forth. You, know, you can see the arguments on both sides. Again, it's a disgusting thing. It's like hate speech. Disgusting. We don't like that. 
but it's protected. And if you don't protect the stuff you hate, what's going to happen long term? You could be on the wrong side of the fence. We'll always protect the speech we like. It's the speech we don't like that we have to worry about being tolerated, and that's why we have a constitution. Here's what the survey respondents said to this one. We ought to amend it, they said. 60% of them, almost two-thirds. We should amend the Constitution to prohibit desecrating the American flag. And even if they would, were said, the next question was, even if you knew this was the first time we ever changed the First Amendment, would you still support uh, prohibiting burning of the flag? Yep. A few people changed their minds, thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't mess with the First Amendment. But most of them said, no, we, we need to change this. It's a difficult decision. There are things going on in, the, in this First Amendment that you know, are going to put us in a position of having to defend stuff we really don't like so that we can protect things we really do like and really do value and that really matter in this country. So one last thing here. Why the First Amendment? Here's a quotation from uh, a Supreme Court decision in 1943. If there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. That's what the First Amendment is designed to do, to make sure that no official can tell us what to think or stop us from saying what we think. So that's why the First Amendment is essential in a democracy, and you guys have been Wonderful, even without a microphone. So thank you very much. I think we have time for a couple questions. Does anybody have a question? Yeah. Uh, toward the very, very beginning of your speech, uh, you outlined a point about how uh, about privacy and how people feel that their emails are safe and stuff like that. Uh, What's your response to things like the U.S. Patriot Act and the Protect America Act and how the president has given the NSA the ability to tell telecommunication companies that they can tap phones and emails to get information like, on U.S. citizens? Let me ask you guys. What do you think about that? I've got an opinion, and I will, I'll share that with you, but I want to hear what you think first. What do you think about that? After 9-11, the president asked for and the Congress passed the USA Patriot Act which, by the way, is something called a backronym. They decided they wanted it to say USA Patriot, and then they made the words fit you know, so they could spell that out. But that's just a side point. Anyway, what do you think about that? The idea that we can, um, that the authorities, the law, law enforcement can tap somebody's phones, that the um, internet service providers can be asked to cough up records and so forth of what people are emailing, looking at, so forth. Is that all right? Why did they do it? Well, it's ridiculous how they made it a backronym. It's like, who's going to re-elect you if, as a congressman if you voted against something called the Patriot Act in a time of national uh, mourning and stuff like that. So it put people in a really tough decision where even if they didn't stand for what the law said, they still they felt kind of obligated to pass it because, sure. I mean, that sentiment was there. And we were scared to death, weren't we? I mean, think about that. You're, you guys are old enough to remember September 12th, 2001, and how scared we were. We didn't know what was going to happen next. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. just, just kidding. I forgot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say, it's just like you said, with the conflicting interests, like, do we protect our freedom of speech or do we protect our national security? Yeah. You want to be alive? Or you want to be able to say whatever you want? But I mean, as recent as 2007, the Protect America Act was passed. And that gives telecommunication companies the go-ahead to tap phones and emails. Mm -hmm. I mean, I unlike this, there was a case in 1967, I think, uh, Cats versus the United States, that said you can't tap um, a phone booth to get information on people. So why should you be able to tap private phones and emails? Good question. Why should you? Why did we pass that last year? I mean, now it's been seven years. We haven't had another attack on American soil. Are we safe? Because if it becomes one of those laws that we can forget about, then it can kind of lay dormant. Um, I think it was 
either the Alien or Sedition Act that stayed around for much longer than it was actually useful or intended for. Um, law enforcement could use it uh, down the road, even, even when the war on terror gets over, uh, should it ever um, say the police need to use a phone tap to catch a criminal that's you know, not terroristic in origin but still has committed a crime and where it would normally be constitutionally um, violating uh, this act allows them to do that anyway. So obviously there's um, reasons besides national security on down the sure. road. Makes, well, that makes life easier for the law enforcement people, doesn't it? For, for anything they want to investigate. Yeah. Good. Uh, there's already, I think, I disagree with you because there's already a framework in which the law enforcement can go about doing things. I mean, it's just calling a judge to get uh, you know, permission to go in and do it. It's, Wow, it takes 24 hours, yep. tops, but yep. like it's not that difficult, and I think it's something that's going to come back to bite us. There's even a special setup, you know, the FISA courts, and I can't remember what FISA stands for, but that that was passed even before 9/11. That was, that was passed 70s, I think. in the 70s, and it set up a way if you want to go after um, terrorism, of uh, political terrorism or whatever, you can take this fast track with the FISA courts. You don't have to go through a regular court to get a warrant and so forth. And it's been there, but now we're saying, well, we don't even have to maybe get that warrant. We can just go do it. If we have some reasonable, whatever somebody defines as reasonable, grounds for this. I, I think you're right. It's the kind of law you can forget this there. And people, if we forget what our freedoms are, and we forget to watch what's going on, we're, we're not in good shape. You know? You've got to watch. You have to be aware. You've got to watch what your government is doing. That's the whole point of being the government. And you are. We are the government. We've got to pay attention to how this happens. Or, or the freedoms that we really value can be just gradually undermined, a little bit more and a little bit more, in the name of something else we value, like state and life. They're trade-offs, all the time trade-offs. Makes life really difficult. It'd be lots easier if it, we, you know, we had the the Bill of Rights, and there was never a question about how to enforce those. But there are questions. It makes life interesting. But you got to pay attention. That's a very good point. Maybe we'll quit with that. Thank you. So pay attention. This is the first amendment. Great. Thank you.